The book of Mark that we've been going through begins chapter 14 like this. Verse 1 says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. You know, Mark's account of this final act here in Jesus' ministry begins with this simple summary of this scene. It was almost Passover, which was more important to those people than even Thanksgiving would be to us. I think that's true for probably almost in all settings. And Jesus' enemies were looking for a way to kill him. Not exactly the type of thing to focus on leading into a special time like that. Their concern about timing, though, had to do more with keeping people under control. They desperately wanted to kill Jesus, desperately wanted him dead. But they wanted to do so without anyone noticing because of how that could affect them in an adverse way. But God had a different purpose in the timing of these events, which we'll see unfold today and over the following two Sundays as we finish the book of Mark. Uh, it's 16 chapters. We're looking at it in 16 weeks, uh, one chapter per week. And today, 14, next week, 15, and then 16. And we will see these purposes all come together in a beautiful way as the Holy Spirit has directed Mark to write this book for us. Um, but today we see some ugly motives, some ugly hearts. Let me ask you, what, what does your heart look like? What's your motive? What's your motive for being here on a Sunday morning? Why get up on a Sunday morning when a lot of people like to sleep in? Why get up and come to church? Especially when it's cold outside, maybe your sidewalk's a little slick still. Why do that? Why, why do we do what we're doing in a general sense? Uh, reading God's Word, talking about it, singing songs like we do. What, why do we do these things? Well, you know, as I told some relatively newish friends of, uh, of mine here at, at our church recently, I, told, I explained to them that being a Christ follower is not so much about religion as it is about relationship. It's really important to understand that. Jesus doesn't care as much about how religious you are as he does about how deep your relationship with him is. That's what he wants more than anything else. He wants a deep and personal relationship with you more than you possibly know. To the point that he's willing to do what we're about to see unfold today and tomorrow. Or next Sunday, actually, I mean. Our motive should not be to just acquire information, although acquiring information is a good thing. Learning is a good thing. Uh, whether it be in traditional school or whether it be in higher education or on and on, studying the Word on your own. All these things are good, but acquiring information alone is not what we need to do by itself because if that's all we do, we could easily end up being like Pharisees, like these people here who were what? What did Mark say? Seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. That's their goal. Now, acquiring information is not bad, but we need to remember 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1 tells us knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So knowledge alone is a dangerous thing. Earlier in our book of Mark that uh, we looked at, I guess, what was it, um, seven weeks ago, 
Mark 7, Jesus said this to, the, to some of these Pharisees. He said, Isaiah was right. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know, some people will miss heaven by 18 inches. Did you know that? So sad, but 18 inches. Some people are going to miss heaven by just that. That's the distance from your brain to your heart. Our motive for reading the Bible or for listening to a sermon or for singing songs like we just did need to be about learning to some degree, of course, absolutely. But not just about learning, not just about getting it in here. We need to allow that information to make the 18-inch journey down to our heart as well. Otherwise, it is not all that far-fetched that we could end up just like these Pharisees who honored Jesus with their lips but whose hearts were cold and almost dead. My goal is to build my house on the rock. I hope yours is too. My goal is to build my house on the rock and to teach you to do the same thing. Jesus talked in Matthew chapter 7. He said that everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And he uses an analogy, paints a picture of a man somewhere maybe close to the sea, and he builds his house on the solid rock. So when the winds come and the storm comes and all of that, that, ho that house stands strong. But Jesus goes on to explain in that chapter, in that story, he said, unlike, though, the person who, well, he said the, the, the foolish man is the one who builds his house on the sand. He's the guy who hears these words of mine but does not put them into practice. And that guy is one who builds that same house. Heck, it might even be more beautiful. But he builds it on the sand, which might look good for a moment. But then as soon as that storm comes, the winds hit it, the waves, all that, boom, it crashes and falls, becomes rubble. We need to build our house on the rock. And my goal is to do that myself and to teach you to do that, to inspire you to do that, which means putting into practice, as Jesus said, the things that he makes clear that he wants for us to do. Like my paraphrase of what I would say is the most important commandment that Jesus talked about. He, when he was asked, what is the most important commandment in Matthew 22? He said it is basically what we have written on the walls here. To love the Lord your God with all you've got. This is my paraphrase. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, he said. To love your neighbor as yourself. He went on to say all the law and the prophets, all 600 plus other laws in the Old Testament, they all hang on these two commands. So that's what I seek to do, and I hope you do as well. I love what God tells us in Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, when the question is asked, and what does the Lord require of you? Good question. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your Lord. What a beautiful thing to aim for. That's my goal, to, to, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. I cannot build your house for you, or nor you for me, each person has to do that on their own. My goal is to preach um, and, and to do my best to, to some degree, feed you the, the Word of God, although a lot of people talk about that maybe a little bit too much, like they pick the church they're going to attend based on whether or not they're fed and how much they're fed and that kind of thing. And that's not t entirely bad. But what I'm telling you is that we need to learn how to feed ourselves. We need to learn how to pick up the fork or spoon and, and spend time alone in God's Word as well. And so what we're doing here on a Sunday morning is hopefully really encouraging and helpful and, and uh, you know, something that brings nourishment your way and all that, but it's not enough by itself. 
We need to spend time alone with the Word as well. And I encourage you to do that. So let's look at this fairly long chapter. It's the longest of Mark's 16 chapters. And we're going to go through the whole thing. But as we do, um, I hope to just kind of whet your appetite, lead you to want to dig in and spend more time on your own reading it as well, because we can only touch on parts of it. But hopefully we can all learn to build our house on the rock, learn how to feed ourselves on God's Word, and, and enjoy and allow Him to help us grow through time with the Word. So let's pick it up here where we left off. Verse 3 goes like this. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, remember this person, Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came up with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like this? But this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. John, who wrote, this, this story is recorded in multiple places. There are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John wrote when he talked about this story, he said this was Judas who said that. Obviously, his motive was not just about taking care of the poor. A denarii, by the way, is basically a day's wage. So if this was um, uh, 300 denarii, we're talking almost a year's worth of wages. So anyway, they scolded her. Verse 6 says, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand, or, yeah, beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Beautiful story. Instead of scolding, she was admired or, or thought very highly of by Jesus. You know, it's very similar to a different story that oftentimes people think are the same, but they're two different accounts. Simon, this is Simon the leper. There was also a story in Luke 7 about Simon a Pharisee, someone that Jesus warned us about and basically said, be careful, these are the people who honor me with their lips but are in need of open heart surgery. Here's how that story goes. Let me just show you because I think it's interesting here. Luke 7 verse 36, similar but different story. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, in other words, a prostitute, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, so Simon the Pharisee, not Simon the leper, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, again, answering what the guy had said to himself, probably not thinking Jesus was listening or hearing, but he said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, I add the sarcasm, say it, teacher. But maybe he said it that way. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, uh, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. 
Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, as he's looking at her, do you see this woman? I entered your house, Simon. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Let me ask you, have you ever, I'm looking for a show of hands, have you ever badly overestimated your own ability? Anybody? All right, all of us, right? Maybe you asked someone to play tennis or a game of one-on-one basketball and then got wiped off the court. That's happened to me multiple times when I thought I was better than I really was. Um, Simon here badly overestimated his own righteousness. Badly. Pharisee, he knows God's word. He's a religious leader, probably does many, many great things, but he badly overestimated his own righteousness. He who is forgiven little loves little, Jesus says. Now, this is not to infer that his sins were few. This is to infer that his confessions were few. He loved little because he thought he only sinned a little. Very dangerous place to be. It's kind of basically what we would call false humility. Maybe he thought to himself, I'm not perfect, but I'm a lot better than her. Have you ever done that? Oh, I'm not perfect, but I'm way better than whatever. You fill in the blank with somebody or a type of person. I tell you what, that is so wrong. I've done it, but it is so wrong. It, 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 it's the kind of thing that, like when Jesus talks in Revelation 3 about people being lukewarm that lead him to actually throw up or vomit them out of his mouth. This is the kind of stuff he's talking about. We have a sign outside. You all walked by it as you walked in. No perfect people allowed. And we need to all humbly understand that that sign applies to us as much as it does any of those that you would think or maybe in your weak moment point toward and think, I'm better than them at least. Be careful to not go there. We all need Jesus and his forgiveness as much as anyone else. We are utterly lost without him. Amen? All of us. None of us are getting to heaven because we deserve it. It is only by the grace of God at whose feet we also need to humbly fall and worship, kiss the feet of every single day. All right, let's continue. Verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. It was his idea. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The wheels are turning. You know, that's heartbreaking. I don't know what you think, but I used to, when I would think of Judas, I, I just kind of think, oh, man, what a scoundrel. You know, I'm kind of really disgusted with him. But as I've gotten older, my thought of him is more kind of shifted toward, I just feel sorry for him because he was so lost. And he clearly didn't see it or understand it. Mostly, I think he was lost because of a love for money. 1 Timothy 6 is an often misquoted verse, verse 10. The Bible does not say that, that money is the root of all evil. It says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts or kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have 
wandered far from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wandered from the faith, ended up lost, which is so heartbreaking. We need to understand Jesus loved Judas just like he loves you and me. And it broke his heart. And it should ours when we see whether it be Judas or anybody else wandering far from the faith. You know, in my quiet time this week, I, I try to every day, I don't succeed all the time, but pretty much every day I get up and spend time alone with the Word, and I've been going through a thing that leads me to read the Bible in a year, and, and I came to, part of that plan is to read some Old Testament, some New Testament every day. Ezekiel chapter 33, I just happened to be led to read this this week, and I thought, wow, that's really interesting in this context. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says, As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. So turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? We need to see Jesus' love for us. Some people get this totally messed up wrong idea that he's up there like a cosmic cop looking for a way to squash us, bring the hammer. Oh, they, I'm just waiting. As soon as they mess up, man, I'm going to bring it. He's not like that. He loves us. He desires that all would come to repentance to turn from our wicked ways. We need to see that in Jesus and we need to learn from Judas as well and avoid wandering from the faith by chasing after money or anything else that the enemy would hold in front of us like a carrot saying, hey, chase this, chase this. This is where real happiness is. No, 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 it's not. Follow and trust what the Lord, our Heavenly Father, teaches us. Learn to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. All right, the next 13 verses in the chapter are maybe my favorite part of the chapter, but we're still going to skip that because uh, we're going to be led to look at this later in a moment as we come to um, our time of communion. Because the next 13 verses are all about communion, if you will, about um, the first time of communion when Jesus led his disciples to, to remember him in this respect or set this example for them. So we'll come back to that. But verse 26, let's jump down here. Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Here we go, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the serpent, or the shepherd, I mean, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. This is a quote from Zechariah. But at, Jesus continues, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You know, this is actually the second time in the same evening that he's predicted, boldly predicted, that they are all going to desert him. He also did it in chapter 13, which Rob Gleghorn led us to look at last week. But notice Jesus does not hold back or sugarcoat the truth. He tells them straight up, you are all going to desert me. He doesn't just think that. Like, I, I, I get the sense that you're probably all going, no. He's saying, I know, you are all going to desert me. And yet I love you anyway. He didn't kick them to the curb. He didn't show them the door. Any of the things that we would have probably been tempted to do if we didn't just think maybe, but we knew for a fact that these friends are going to leave and betray and abandon. Jesus knew it, and yet he loved them anyway. Verse 29, Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not Jesus, even if all the rest of them totally do what you're talking about, I'm not going to. You can count on me. 
zero chance that I will leave you. Peter is kind of similar to Simon the Pharisee that we just read from in Luke 7, isn't he? Grossly overestimating his commitment level to Jesus. The truth is that rather than being the most loyal disciple, he would actually kind of prove himself to be the least. Not only would he desert Jesus, he would deny him. And not once, not twice, three times deny him. Verse 30, and Jesus said to Peter, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Grossly overestimating themselves. You know, I admire Peter's boldness. Here, when he walked on the water, there are a number of times he, he was very bold. And, and there's a lot we can learn from that boldness. We all need to step out and speak up and, and trust in faith. And all the things that Peter modeled for us in this context, generally anyway, are really, really good. But we also need to learn from his struggles here. Learn to be more humble and teachable, which, which Peter was eventually, even though he struggled with it mightily right here. But again, beyond learning from Peter's lessons and stories, we need to learn from Jesus because there is nothing greater than the love of Jesus, which I cannot even begin to fathom a picture or a story that would portray it better than what we are seeing unfold right here. The love of Jesus is the most amazing and powerful thing this planet has ever seen. Thanksgiving Day is four days away. When Thursday arrives, I, I would like for you right now to just make a mental note that when Thursday arrives, that no matter what you're doing, no matter how many people are there, no matter how many, you know, how much pressure you feel to get that turkey done or get the table set, I want to encourage you with all those that are there to at some point take it a moment some time and pause and, and just live out what, the, what we should do there and be thankful to pause and to thank your Lord and your Savior for his patience with you. As we see it here with Peter and with others, thank him for his patience with you. Thank him for his love for you, his willingness to forgive you. Not just to love and forgive and be patient with mankind in general, but you specifically. In fact, can we do this? Let's pause for just 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Will you bow your head? Close your eyes. And right now, in your own personal way, pretend there's nobody else in the room. It's just you and the Lord. And say, thank you. Friends, don't ever think for a moment that what Jesus did or is about to do in our story here was easy. The more we read, the more this story opens up or unfolds, the more we realize how difficult it had to have been. Look at what happens next. Verse 32, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Abba means dad, daddy. He's basically just saying, Dad, I, dad, I don't want to do this. Please, if there be any other way. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Notice Mark does not record that he said to Peter, Peter, are you not sleeping? Or are you asleep? He called him Simon. Simon was his name prior to when Jesus met him. He renamed him, Jesus renamed Simon to Peter because Peter means rock. He said, on this rock I will build my church. And Peter became a strong person in many respects. But in this moment he was not being very strong. Maybe that's why Jesus called him Simon again. Verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And then again he went away and prayed, saying the same words second time. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man, that's his favorite phrase for, his, for himself, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You know, apart from the cross itself, I think this moment right here in Gethsemane is probably the most intense moment in Jesus' entire life. He experienced the crushing weight of the task he was about to undertake he witnessed the weakness that his disciples demonstrated by falling asleep. He had the foreknowledge of knowing that they were all about to abandon him. Not just think, not a premonition like maybe, but he knew they were all about to abandon him. And he saw the betrayer coming. And he sensed with anguish that this cup would not pass, that he would indeed drink from this cup and he would indeed do it alone. Utterly alone. Sometimes we're tempted to think that Jesus can't really understand our pain or our hurts or our struggles. He doesn't, you know, he's God. He doesn't really know what that's like. Oh, yes, he does. Oh, yes, he does. Don't ever believe that. He knows. He understands. He feels it with you, whatever it is. And notice when he dealt with the heaviest weight in the history of the world, by the way, when he dealt with that, he prayed, fervently prayed. In fact, Luke chapter 22 uh, records that he, he prayed so fervently that his sweat became like drops of blood. It's a scientific uh, possibility. It takes incredible tension, but yes, that's what he felt. You know what? We need to learn from his example and turn toward and lean on God in our difficult moments as well. We need to pray prayers of thanksgiving as I tried to lead us all to just do a moment ago. 
thanking God and praising Him for all the many, many blessings and good things. But we also need to pray when the stuff hits the fan, when we are feeling oppressed or beaten down or, or just lonely or depressed or sad, whatever it may be. We need to turn to Him as our first option, never a last resort. Our first option should be to turn to Him and pray. Even when we might, in our own words, say something like what Jesus did here. Lord, please, if there be any other way, please remove this cup from me. It's fair, it's fine to ask such a prayer. But when we do, I think we can follow Jesus' example here also and say, But, Lord, I trust you. Your will be done. Yours above mine. Yet not as I will, but what you will. Trusting that his plan, his timing, his will is better than ours. And if we will do that and lean into him, it will lead us to a beautiful and healthy place. All right, let's keep going. Verse 43. Immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Not just hardened soldiers. These were the church leaders, those who, who, whose lips honored Jesus, but whose hearts were far from him. Clubs and swords. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, probably on the cheek. That was a common custom. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this story. There are other stories in Scripture that are only recorded in one of the four, but, uh, or maybe two. But in this case, all four talk about this, but they give different elements or pieces to it. John records that this, this unnamed person by Mark was actually Peter who cut off the ear of Malchus, who was the servant of the high priest. Um, Luke records that Jesus healed Malchus's ear, put it back up. Luke being a physician, he would be mindful of such things. Matthew records that Jesus said, put away your sword, put it back into its place, for those who live by the sword will die by the sword. But this is where the chaos began. Before we look at what happens next, let me ask you, have you ever heard the phrase semper paratus? Paratus? Have you ever heard that? It means always prepared. It's the motto of the U.S. Coast Guard. And it rings true in spiritual life as well. And this scene that we're looking at, I think, illustrates the difference between praying and therefore being prepared versus not praying and therefore not being prepared. Jesus, who has been praying, was well prepared for what is about to happen. Now, he wasn't looking forward to it. That's very clear. He said, Lord, please take it away. But, but he was prepared because he was in prayer. Whereas his disciples, who were sleeping rather than praying, were not prepared. They were not ready. And they, therefore, fell apart. They disintegrated in chaos, you know, when the posse showed up and it all hit the fan. Just like the Coast Guard, we need to develop a simple paratus approach and attitude toward life. And the way to do so is to be people of prayer. My friends, I, I want to tell you, don't just talk about and thumbs up or nod your head. Yeah, prayer is important. Live it out. Spend time in prayer so that you also can be ready, awake and alert, always prepared. Semper paratus. 
like the Coast Guard, when things come your way that you're not expecting or anticipating. All right, verse 48, And Jesus said to them, to this crowd, this posse, Have you come out, against, out, out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all, meaning his disciples, they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now only Mark records this short little detail here. No one knows for sure who this young man was. But many think it was probably young Mark himself, the man who wrote this book. Mark was not, just to be clear again, not one of the original 12 disciples, um, but he was a disciple in that he was following Jesus. There was a larger crowd of disciples following. He just wasn't one of the original 12. And the thought is, by many, as I've read and studied about this, is that no one knows for sure, but that probably Mark was this guy, this young man. Therefore, this was on his heart much more so than other details, than, than no, this was on his heart as a detail, whereas some of the others would have seen this as a not-so-significant detail, and that's why they didn't put it in their book. But he put it in here probably to just humbly acknowledge, yeah, Peter wasn't alone. The rest of the disciples, they weren't alone. I was there, and I totally dropped the ball. I completely abandoned Jesus as well. But anyway, if that's the case, I think we need to learn that we should all not be afraid to talk about our mistakes and our failures. Sometimes what I have seen is that God does his best work, his very best work sometimes through our admission of our own times when we've blown it, when we've messed up, when we've let Jesus down, when we, you know, have had to recognize that we are nothing, that we are kind of like this young man, we are naked without Jesus. Well, if you read this story in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that only John records some of the next events uh, leading up to Jesus' capture. Mark, like uh, Matthew and Luke, jump right to the preliminary hearing at the house of Caiaphas, the current Jewish high priest and the son-in-law of the former high priest named Annas, whom John also talks about Jesus being in front of. John also talks about him being in front of Pilate, the whole Sanhedrin. Mark kind of skips over some of that and jumps to right here, verse 53, as we kind of come to the end of the chapter. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the, into the courtyard of the high priest. And he, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That's their plan. That's their goal. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Not really what he said. Verse 59, Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify um, against you. But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now this is a question worth answering. This is the question, the most important question, unlike the inconsistent 
false accusations that didn't really even need to be responded to. Jesus knew this question needed to be answered. So Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Matthew records that when Judas and the mob showed up just a few moments earlier, that Peter, you know, when he drew his sword and cut off Malchus's ear, that Jesus in that moment said, Do you realize, don't you realize that I could call on my father who would at once bring to my disposal 12, 12 legions of angels? I, I could do that. Put your sword away, Peter. I could stop this if I needed to. A legion, by the way, is 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus is saying, I could bring 70 plus thousand angels if I needed to, if I really wanted to. Part of me wants to, but part of me, the bigger part of me says, no, I don't want to. Why? Because he loves like no one else has ever loved. He loved you and me. He loved Judas. He loved these who were spitting on him and punching him and cursing him and betraying him and scheming against him. All the, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they are doing, he will soon say. And he says that about you and me as well. Well, chapter 14 and our message today both end with Peter sitting by a fire, watching Jesus endure horrible things, but from a distance. What happens in the next few hours will revolutionize Peter's life. He will change from a half-hearted, inconsistent follower to a repentant, fully devoted follower of Jesus. Here it is, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now remember, Peter has just impulsively drawn his sword to defend Jesus. But now that he's had time to think about it, and now that he's alone, and, and of course again, he is not very well prepared because he wasn't praying as he should have been. He does what a lot of us might have done in that moment. He lies through his teeth. He denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Should have reminded him. Verse 69 continues, And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. Number two, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, probably because of his accent, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse, here's number three, on himself, and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. It, basically, the thought is he probably said something to the effect also of, if I am lying to you, may God curse me down, strike me dead. And... In that moment, Luke records that Jesus, probably from a second-story window, being treated horrifically, looked down and locked eyes with Peter. And Peter remembered 
Bible says, he remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Fortunately, Peter's story does not end here. His tears were tears of true sorrow and repentance. Peter later reaffirmed his love for Jesus and Jesus forgave him. But Peter remembered this moment for the rest of his life. How, how foolishly he had promised what he so miserably failed to follow through with. But this worst moment of his life became his greatest lesson and opportunity to grow in life. He learned the gospel here. The story of Jesus. He learned it. He lived it. The gospel being that God so loved not just the world, but God so loved even a disciple who failed him miserably, abandoning not only his Lord, but his friend, that God so loved even him that he sent Jesus to die and that Jesus willingly went to the cross. I don't know this, but I would guess Peter told many people about this story, about the gospel, which basically just means the story of the good news of Jesus. He probably, I'm guessing, told this story many times. Now, obviously not with any pride, but with great humility about his most shameful moment. And in the same way, you and I need to tell others of God's patience with us, of our mistakes. In fact, I would tell you this, your simple story is powerful. People who know you will listen to your story, even if you only know this much about God's Word and have this much or zero memorized, they'll listen to your story more than they will mine most of the time because they know you. They have a relationship with you. We need to all tell our story. And the story of Jesus, more importantly, and how we get to be a little part of His story. Our mistakes plus God's grace equals the wonderful story of the cross of his love the gospel in short is Jesus came Jesus died Jesus rose again and he's coming back someday just as Peter's story does not end here yours and mine does not need to either I don't know about you but your life I would guess if you're like me probably includes some pretty big blunders right probably all of us. But I want to ask you, do you hear through this story, do you hear God's loving assurance? Do you hear the grace that he wants to bestow upon you? Do you feel his love? Oh, I hope you do. Because Jesus died on the cross, which we'll look at in more detail next week, to pay for Peter's sins, for all the disciples, for young Mark, for, for those that did the, did the dirty deed themselves. But he did so for you and I too. We're going to, in fact, will you do this? Will you stand with me? We're going to sing two great songs of worship. And as we do, if you sense or hear Jesus speaking to you, calling your name, maybe almost as if he's looking you in the eye just like he did Peter, Will you respond? Maybe that means to come down front.
to let me or somebody on our response team pray with you, talk with you about your next decision. Maybe, maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to give your life to Him. Maybe you need to repent of sin. Maybe you want to just come and ask somebody to pray with you because you feel weak. Whatever it looks like, I just want to encourage you, if you feel God speaking to you, will you respond? And at a bare minimum, let's all just worship Him. Whether you put your arms in the air, is up to you. But let's sing and let's surrender. Let's worship to Him with all we've got. And let's do it together right here, right now.